Biographical Bites from Bala Number 9. Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley, a forgotten pioneer in gender studies. Welcome to the ninth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories. West Laurel Hill is a historic and active cemetery in Bala Kenwood, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill, in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill and has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Like Laurel Hill, though, it is open 365 days a year. Now, in the summer months from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's plenty of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the Bell Tower. If you enter on Belmont, follow the road with the white line in the middle. Another possibility is just duck in while you're walking the Kinwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation is probably to take a bus to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come in via the Writer's Ferry entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. Our ninth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-June 2022. It concerns Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley. In earlier editions of this podcast, I talked about women interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery whose contributions to science were ignored or forgotten. Martha Coston, whose expertise in pyrotechnics and chemistry led to the Coston Flare, which has literally saved thousands of lives over the past 170 years. Rachel Lloyd, the first American woman to receive a PhD in chemistry and who was a pioneer in the sugar beet industry. Mary Engel Pennington, an expert in botany, chemistry, and zoology, who helped pioneer the frozen food industry, refrigerated boxcars, and who ran the FDA chemistry lab. Today, I will tell you of a woman who literally turned the understanding of gender roles on its head. Her groundbreaking work at the turn of the 20th century, summarized in her PhD thesis, The Mental Traits of Sex, exploded on the psychology scene like nothing that had come before it. And yet, the name Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley was little remembered for decades. She is interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Helen Bradford Thompson was born in what was then the Chicago suburb of Englewood on 6 November 1874. Englewood was annexed to Chicago in 1889, centered around 63rd and Halstead. Helen's father, Paul Thompson, was a partner in a shoe manufacturing business and an amateur inventor of everything from a thermostat to a burglar alarm. Her mother was Isabella Perkins Faxon, F-A-X-O-N. 
Helen's older sister was Jane. Her younger sister was Lillian. In addition to raising her three girls, Isabella was active in missionary work. Now, Helen admired her mother's activities outside the home, but rejected her missionary work. She declared when she was 12 that she was an agnostic. Helen decided that she wanted to be a scientist. Older sister Jane spent one year at the newly co-educational University of Michigan, but dropped out because of a lack of funding. Younger sister Lillian attended Cook County Normal School and became a teacher. She remained single her whole life. Helen knew that her only chance to attend college was to win a scholarship. She did well enough in high school to give one of the valedictory speeches in 1893. Her topic, with the aid of invention, praised the progress that science had made in diminishing humans' hard work. She summed up her premise with, knowledge is the source of civilized man's power. The teenager was convinced that science had the potential to solve all human problems. Not too far from Englewood, in the community of Hyde Park, which had been annexed by Chicago in 1889, the University of Chicago was being established through the philanthropy of John D. Rockefeller and the leadership of William Rainey Harper. When Helen graduated from high school, the campus was still only partially completed. The Columbian Exposition was drawing tens of thousands of people every day to its white city on the shore of Lake Michigan. But Helen won her scholarship and was excited to find that half of the entering class of 1893 was women. All she needed was money for books and car fare as she would live at home. Helen knew exactly what kind of science she wanted to learn and practice, what we would today probably call soft science. She had arrived at the University of Chicago at the same time that modern thinker John Dewey was starting his tenure presence after having taught at the University of Michigan. Dewey was a pragmatist who said early in his career, democracy and the one ultimate ethical ideal of humanity are, to my mind, synonymous. Pragmatists contend that most philosophical topics, the nature of knowledge, language, concepts, meaning, belief, and science, are best viewed in terms of their practical uses and successes. They reject the idea that the function of thought is to describe, represent, or mirror reality. Helen started as a philosophy major, but she also took courses in neurology and psychology. Why neurology? Because all behavioral origins begin with the nervous system. So all scientists of human behavior should possess basic physiological understandings. After taking classes with Dewey and James Angel, she drifted towards psychology. By her senior year, she had made up her mind and took a departmental scholarship in psychology. She met Paul Gerhard Woolley, W-O-O-L-L-E-Y, who was finishing his medical studies at Chicago. Soon, Thompson and Woolley were engaged, and they stayed that way for eight years until they both had finished their professional training. Helen graduated in 1897, summa cum laude, 
Paul took off for a residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, the oldest research university in the United States, where five years earlier, the medical school had been established by the big four of American medicine. William Osler, medicine. William Halstead, surgery. William Welsh, pathology and public health. And Howard Kelly, gynecology, who was a Philadelphian. He'd done his residency at Episcopal Hospital in Kensington. Helen remained in Chicago to do her postgraduate work in psychology with a minor in neurology. She was ahead of the curve. This was about the time that psychology and philosophy were becoming independent disciplines, and she was present at the creation of empirical psychology. Empiricism says that knowledge is based on experience and that it is tentative, subject to continued revision and falsification. A theory or a hypothesis is falsifiable, that is refutable, if it can be logically contradicted by an empirical test that can potentially be executed with existing technologies. In other words, I make a statement about something. Unless you can produce evidence that I am wrong, my statement must stand. Most scientists know that nothing can ever be proven conclusively. The best we can do is to prove something to the best of our ability and then accept those results until someone proves them false. Empirical research, including experiments and validated measurement tools, guides the scientific method. One of the questions in scientific method is how do we move from observations to scientific laws? This is the problem of induction. By 1900, empirical psychologists who had studied in Germany came back to the United States to establish psychological laboratories. Eventually, there were 26 of them across the country. Psychologists began to gather and share data about how people actually behaved before they drew conclusions about human psychological capacities. Until this time, the proposed psychological configuration of women was almost exclusively speculative or derived from animal studies. So-called experts had decided that women's intelligence was different from men's in both quantity and quality and directed toward different subjects. Since it was different from men's, it was assumed to be inferior. For instance, in 1873, Dr. Edward Clark's popular book, Sex in Education or A Fair Chance for the Girls, warned that too much education would harm the fertility of women. After Clark had seen and treated a handful of college-educated women for menstrual problems, such as dysmenorrhea or amenorrhea, he came to this amazingly bizarre conclusion that women who used their brains in pursuing academic achievement were diverting blood from the reproductive apparatus. Astonishingly, he felt the same thing about men, stating, quote, undue and disproportionate brain activity exerts a sterilizing influence on both sexes, but is more potent in the female than in the male, end quote. He threatened educated women by saying that they would become hermaphrodites. He called birth control self-tampering, and he blamed women's inabilities to breastfeed their babies on too much education. He also warned that, quote, 
the race will be propagated from its inferior classes, end quote, if white upper class women insisted on being educated. As chilling as these eugenic beliefs seem now, they almost certainly influenced how many women saw themselves in the second half of the 19th century. Another pioneering psychologist, William James, who's now recognized as the father of American psychology, published in his influential 1890 work, Principles of Psychology, the ideas of G.H. Snyder on maternal instinct. Schneider portrayed, quote, women before motherhood as vain, egotistic, irritable, and nervous, but instantly transformed when they have a baby. They become totally selfless, no longer need sleep, function unconsciously and intuitively, find absolute delight in their hideous infants, are similar to the animal mother, and do not mind holding feces in the naked hands. End quote. Many male scientists literally believe that your sex cells determined your entire personality. For instance, if you had sperm wiggling around in your testes, you were obviously energetic and you were keen on achieving goals. But if you carried a cluster of large immobile eggs, you were a more passive, submissive type waiting for life to happen to you. The thinking of the day was codified in The Evolution of Sex. This was a tome published by two male scientists, of course. John Arthur Thompson, no relation to Helen, who was a naturalist, and Patrick Geddes, a biologist. In their 1889 publication, they compared humans with various insects, threadworms, and parasites in which the females are rather passive, motionless egg carriers. They concluded that across life, quote, on an average, the females incline to passivity, the males to activity, end quote, and that females were protectively retarded by natural selection. In addition, women were more emotional, religious, and sensitive than men, less capable of rational or scientific thought. Hence, their admission to studying higher sciences was worthless, as most women could never fully understand the finer points of science. Absolutely none of these ideas had been proven. They were just assumed to be so. Helen Bradford Thompson decided to challenge the common knowledge. She used a fellowship that she received from the American Association of University Women to study the newly emerging science of psychological testing in Germany and France. And she became fluent in both of those languages. And then she started her empirical studies. For her research, Thompson chose 25 undergraduate women and 25 men as subjects to test the empirical differences between men's and women's intelligence. These tests involved scientific apparatus. She measured perception through sensitivity to pressure, color, light, sound, taste. She measured motor skills, response times, coordination, ingenuity, rate of fatigue. She measured visual and auditory memory, associations, and general information. Now, since she was agnostic, she relied on subjects to self-report in measurements of religious consciousness. 
as well as their social and emotional lives. In all her tests, Thompson constantly returned to the topic of judgment. For instance, in a test of memory, subjects were required to memorize a series of nonsense syllables, describe the type of imagery that each used in memorizing, tell whether or not each had learned the series by means of associations, and report any tendencies to group the syllables in learning them. So not content merely to count how many syllables a person could memorize, Thompson asked subjects to comment on the process by which they completed the task. Thompson's tests on 50 subjects took the better part of a year to complete. When she was ready to report her results, she used charts and graphs rather than just showing tables of hard numbers. And in those days before calculators and computers, she did all of her own computations and statistical work. Now, to anyone reading her conclusions in the 21st century, it should come as no surprise that Thompson's research showed that women were better at some tasks and men were better at others. But she came to three conclusions which more or less shook the foundations of empiric psychology. Number one, most of the differences between men and women were so slight as to be insignificant. Number two, the differences that she found were not on the whole those predicted by the theories of J.A. Thompson, Geddes, and others. And number three, Helen Bradford Thompson reasoned that some differences, such as aiming at a target or estimating weights at which men were better, or forming a new coordination and memory at which women were better, these had resulted from the way boys and girls were brought up since they involve tasks akin to boys and girls games and occupations. Even more striking than the differences, which were for the most part minimal in those days before p-values, Thompson's graphs showed a remarkable similarity in all but one of her 77 graphs. The lines representing men's and women's functioning overlapped with one exception, color perception. There, the differences related to the prevalence of colorblindness in men. Helen was cautious. She said in her conclusion that, quote, the biological theory of psychological differences of sex is not in a condition to compel assent. Thus was Helen Bradford Thompson the first person to formulate the theory of what is now called sex role stereotyping. The suggestion that the observed differences in sex may be due to differences in environment has often been met with derision, but it seems at least worthy of unbiased consideration. The fact that very genuine and important differences of environment do exist can be denied only by the most superficial observer. Even in our own country, where boys and girls are allowed to go to the same schools and to play together to some extent, the social atmosphere is different from the cradle. End quote. I interpret what she's trying to say here as duplicate my research, see if you get the same results, or if you can disprove my conclusions. In other words, the scientific method. Here's more from Thompson's work. Boys are encouraged to individuality, 
They are trained to be independent in thought and action. This is the idea of manliness held up before them. They're expected to understand the uses of tools and machinery and encouraged to experiment and make things for themselves. Girls are taught obedience, dependence, and deference. They are made to feel that too much independence of opinion or action is a drawback to them. Thompson even felt compelled to take on directly the conclusion about inherent sexual differences offered earlier by Geddes and J.A. Thompson, suggesting cautiously that, quote, it seems to rest on somewhat far-fetched analogies only. In discussing their theory involving many adventurous active sperm and a large passive egg, she commented, quote, after reading several expositions of this theory, one is left with a strong impression that if the author's views as to the mental differences of sex had been different, they might as easily have derived a very different set of characteristics. And then she abandoned her usual cautious opinion when she noted that men who described women's thought processes as different from men's simply had not done much scientific research. Critics of Helen's conclusions made the argument that the data didn't really reflect women since her study group was all college students and therefore they weren't normal women. They ignored the reality. In 1900, there were an estimated 1.5 million 17-year-olds in the United States, an estimated 6.4 high school graduates for every 100 17-year-olds. Approximately 38,000 males graduated from high school, 57,000 females. Helen's dissertation even attracted some attention from the popular press. Her use of the statistical term norms was unfamiliar to many who mistakenly published parts of her work as, quote, psychological forms or even psychological worms. Helen received her Ph.D. degree in 1900, also graduating summa cum laude. Later, John Dewey admitted privately to a friend that Helen's Ph.D. thesis was better than his. John B. Watson, who later developed and popularized the scientific theory of behaviorism, also graduated from the University of Chicago. I received my degree magna cum laude and was told almost immediately by Dewey and Angel that my exam was much inferior to that of Miss Helen Thompson, who had graduated two years before me with a summa cum laude. I wondered then if anybody could ever equal her record. That jealousy existed for years. Uh, Wilson apparently overcame his jealousy. He went on to become one of the 20 most cited psychologists of the 20th century. Despite Helen's brilliance and credentials, there were very few jobs for women in academia at the turn of the 20th century. She found a position at Mount Holyoke College for Women in South Hadley, Massachusetts, the oldest of the Seven Sisters Colleges. She was to teach logic, introduction to philosophy, and psychology. There was a bit of a culture shock moving from Chicago to a college where the students followed more than a hundred rules of deportment and attended chapel daily. She asked the college for funds to set up a psychology laboratory. The administration agreed and they used money that someone had given the college to prove the existence of the immortal soul. 
Helen Thompson taught at Mount Holyoke for four years while Paul Woolley was working as an epidemiologist in Japan. In 1905, Helen traveled to Japan. She and Paul married in Yokohama. Shortly before, he was transferred to a laboratory in the Philippines. Helen went with him and worked for the Philippine Bureau of Education. At that time, officials could only afford three years of compulsory education for Filipino children, and they asked her which three years would be the best. Although she was somewhat burdened by not being able to track down children's exact ages, she ended up recommending compulsory schooling for children between the ages of 9 and 12, a time that she had decided children's memories were the best. They continued their peripatetic life. Paul was assigned as medical advisor to the King of Siam, doing public health work and manufacturing vaccines for anthrax and smallpox. They lived in an isolated village outside of Bangkok in order for Paul to have access to the calves and the horses needed to make the serum for his vaccines. Helen, now writing under her married name of Woolley, published an article entitled Sensory Affection and Emotion in the Psychological Review in 1907. Then Helen became pregnant. Paul decided she should go home. She arrived stateside just six weeks before delivering Eleanor Faxon Woolley in August 1907. Without a research project for two years, Helen developed an interest in child psychology, publishing articles in infant perception with Eleanor as her subject. Paul returned stateside when Eleanor was six months old, and the family spent a year in Omaha. Then. They moved to Cincinnati, where Paul taught at the medical school, and Helen was a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Cincinnati. Helen continued to research and write. In a 1910 review of the research done to that point on the psychological differences between men and women, Helen Thompson Woolley wrote, There is perhaps no field aspiring to be scientific where flagrant personal bias logic murdered in the cause of supporting a prejudice, unfounded assertions, and even sentimental rot and drivel have run riot to such an extent as here. In 1911, Helen became director of the Cincinnati Vocation Bureau, a group founded in 1910 by Cincinnati philanthropists interested in improving working conditions for women and children. Like her mentor, Dewey, she was interested in social justice. She was involved in movements for women's suffrage, child study, the abolition of child labor, nursery school, and vocational guidance. At that time, proponents of child labor claimed that working children benefited from working as much as they would have from staying in school, again, without evidence. Progressive reformers suspected this was not true, but they did not have proof. Helen studied childhood labor with her assistant, Charlotte Rust Fisher, and their work was essential in helping change child labor laws. In her 1926 work, an experimental study of children at work and in school between the ages of 14 and 18 years, she concluded that School life favors general physical vigor and energy more than working life. 
school children had not only done better in all the mental measurements, they excelled in most of the physical measurements. Helen's aim was to help children select vocations based on ability, not class status, or what some politicians have recently called an imaginary McDonald's track. While working in Cincinnati, Helen and Paul's second child, Charlotte, was born. Helen got heavily involved in the reform work of the city. She served on the boards of the Cincinnati Community Chest, the Women's City Club, and the Women's Suffrage Committee of General Cincinnati. She would pass out suffragist leaflets on streetcars and often served as the final speaker at rallies to provide a voice of well-informed reason as a counterweight to some of the other speakers' emotional militancy. In 1921, when Cincinnati suffragists were scheduled to meet in a downtown hotel, the management would not allow a black woman member of their group to enter. Helen immediately led the group out of the hotel and they met at someone's house. Newspapers reported the group's actions as outrageous and that they were considered dangerous radicals. Helen saw no contraindication in being involved in a reform while maintaining her scientific discipline. Science should guide reform, and reform should direct the use of science. Until now, Helen Thompson Woolley had played the good wife, and she had followed her husband as his career broadened. By doing this, she could not allow herself to hold a tenure-track position, unlike her mentors, Dewey and Angel. Raising a family and moving every few years ruined her opportunity to establish a stable academic life. And by 1920, Paul and Helen had begun to drift apart after 15 years of marriage. When he went mountain climbing on vacation, she took the girls to a lake in Michigan. And then without consulting her, Paul took a job in Detroit running a medical testing laboratory. To Helen, this seemed like a demotion. He'd been a professor of pathology at the medical school. He'd even served as dean for a year. So in 1921, Helen was 46 years old. Charlotte was seven. Eleanor was 14. She felt obliged once again to follow her husband, giving up years of successful work in the Queen City. Before she left to join Paul in Detroit, the city leaders of Cincinnati hosted a farewell banquet in her honor with 300 people in attendance. A scholarship was established in her name. Reluctantly, Helen had to start all over again, this time in Detroit. She obtained a position as psychologist and assistant director at the Merrill Palmer School which later became part of Wayne State University. It's now known as the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute for Child and Family Development. In 1960, Lizzie Pitts Merrill Palmer had left a bequest to found the school. She believed that, quote, the welfare of any community is divinely and inseparably dependent upon the quality of its motherhood and the spirit and character of its homes, end quote. Helen and her assistants opened one of the first experimental nursery schools in the country, and they worked to publicize the importance of early childhood education. Some of her articles on child development were reprinted by the school after she left as a series of pamphlets in 1927. In 1924, Paul contracted tuberculosis, 
probably from his diagnostic laboratory. And he left for a sanatorium in Pasadena, California. There is a suggestion that he left Helen for a younger woman at this time. This left Helen responsible for the household expenses and child management. So in 1925, she started considering other jobs. She turned down an opportunity to teach at Bryn Mawr because she wanted to continue her interest in young children. She turned down an offer at the University of Minnesota because she disliked the idea of cold winters. But in February 1926, she was offered a position at Teachers College, Columbia University, as director of the new Institute of Child Welfare Research. Helen's position at the Merrill Palmer School was secure. They offered to match any salary offered by Teachers College. But Columbia Dean James Russell and director of the School of Education Robert Leonard promised Helen that she could, quote, count on a salary for life, end quote. It was a gentleman's agreement. Nothing was put in writing. But Helen Woolley took the job at Columbia. Just a few months later, in May of 1926, she underwent an emergency hysterectomy. In the fall of 1926, Helen established two nursery schools at Teachers College in order to study early childhood education. She had 15 graduate students working under her, all women. And in 1927, Paul Woolley, who had already obtained a Mexican divorce from Helen, filed for an American divorce. Helen was devastated. While she could accept that she and Paul were estranged from each other, divorce took away her respectability. She suffered a nervous breakdown. She spent a year in a sanatorium near Katona, New York. But she recovered. She returned to her professional duties in the fall of 1928, teaching, researching, and writing. Helen felt that she had completely recovered. So she was surprised in February 1930 be summoned to the office of the new dean, William Russell, son of the former dean, the man who had promised that she would have salary for life. Dean William Russell asked for her resignation. By this time, Helen Thompson Woolley was an internationally known scholar and researcher. She reminded the dean of the agreement made with his father and discovered that in her own words, quote, when one party in a gentleman's agreement is a woman with no written evidence of the agreement, it counts for little, end quote. Despite always receiving the highest commendations and excellent student evaluations, she was given a dismissal letter that accused her of being a poor teacher and an incompetent administrator. It is 1930. It is the height of the Depression. She's 56 years old. Helen Woolley spent the next 10 years unsuccessfully looking for a job. Dean Russell's opinion, saying that she had been dismissed from Teachers College because of mental and physical illnesses, had apparently gotten around to all the places that she applied. Her last publication was a chapter in A Handbook of Child Psychology, 1931, entitled Eating, Sleeping, and Elimination. Helen became totally dependent on her daughter, Eleanor Fowler, and son-in-law, Cedric Fowler, who was a journalist for the New Outlook, a liberal magazine. In 1929, Eleanor's entry in the Bryn Mawr alumni magazine had read, 
Eleanor Woolley, they misspelled her name with only one L, is married to Cedric Fowler, a Canadian who is living in New York and writing a book which will certainly be banned, end quote. Cedric did write an article about Helen's work in 1935, but she continued to sink into obscurity. In 1946, Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley moved into a room of her daughter's house in Westgate Hills, Pennsylvania. That's a neighborhood in Heffertown. Now in her 70s, she became shriller and more paranoid. She had not been able to work in her field of expertise for more than 15 years. She wrote, quote, I bitterly resented my treatment at Teachers College, Columbia University. I doubt if anywhere else in the academic world would you find a person of my excellent professional reputation, my irreproachable personal life, and my degree of social acceptability treated as unfairly as I was. Helen Woolley died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 72 at her daughter Eleanor's house at Westgate Hills on Christmas Eve 1947. Neither the New York Times nor the Philadelphia Inquirer published an obituary. At least I couldn't find one. Her seminal work at the beginning of the 20th century was pretty much ignored and forgotten in the second half of the 20th century. But during the first half of that century, she and John Dewey interacted on the cutting edge of what came to be known as pragmatism. She felt that philosophy should deal with the social problems that hinder people from making the most of their lives. Helen Thompson Woolley was one of a handful of female psychologists who shattered a glass ceiling and then hit a brick wall. Despite their significant contributions to psychological understandings of gender difference, female scholars were largely written out of histories of psychology during and before the 1970s. It was only after the rise in feminist and women's histories that women's portrayal in and contributions to psychological research were considered in historical perspective. At long last, scholars of the history of psychology are giving Helen Thompson Woolley her due. Although her name is not included in the online database for West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Find a Grave says she is interred in the Green Lawn section, Lot 10. That's directly in front of the conservatory. But Find a Grave also said she died in New York City. We know that she died in Havertown. The cemetery archives say that she was cremated and her ashes were consigned to earth. No matter, her final resting place is in Balakinwood at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Remember that the next edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories will be available on the last Friday of June. It's The Thomas Jefferson Connections, Part 1, Three Williams. William Duane, whose newspaper Philadelphia Aurora helped elect Jefferson our third president. William Drayton, a frequent correspondent with Jefferson on architecture, botany, animal husbandry, and landscape designs. And William Short, Jefferson's private secretary while he was in France, and the man Jefferson referred to as his adoptive son, 
All three of them are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. A biographical bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill edition number 10 in mid-July, concerns the father and son team of Herman and Louis Haupt. Herman was a Civil War general who revolutionized U.S. military transportation, particularly the use of railroads. Lewis was a United States civil engineer whose career emphasized work on waterways. Remember to become a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. You get discounts on tours, you get discounts in the gift shop, at least two members-only bonus podcasts this year, and even some special tours that include visits inside some mausoleums at West Laurel Hill. Now, the rest of June is busy, busy, busy. Hot Spots tours on the Saturday the 11th, Thursday the 16th. I'm going to be tour guide for that one. And Friday the 24th. Themed tours at Laurel Hill in late June. Saturday, June 11th, What a Piece of Work is Man, the Shakespeare Tour from Patty and Tom Stringer. A new tour called Out of the Closet and Into the Crypt, Queer Stories of Laurel Hill from Pat Rose on Sunday, June 12th at 2 p.m. And the annual Juneteenth Tour. This year it's actually on June 19th at 11, no, it's at 1 p.m. To Set Them Free, an abolitionism walking tour of Laurel Hill from the one and only Russ Dodge. Also to celebrate Juneteenth, come two days earlier on Friday the 17th at 8 p.m. for Cinema in the Cemetery series and the classic movie Glory, now nearly a third of a century old, believe it or not. See a much younger Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Broderick, Carrie Elways, and many others. Tickets for all of these events are available from our website, thelaurelhillcemetery.org slash events. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and podcaster for both cemeteries. Maybe I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. The bibliography is coming up next. Okay, this was a big bibliography. These these podcasts seem to get more complicated every month. Anyway, the bibliography, um, this I mentioned in the, in the script, The Evolution of Sex by Professors Patrick Geddes and J. Arthur Thompson. It's from the Humboldt Publishing Company, New York, copyrighted 1889. That's available online as a PDF. The Metal Traits of Sex, an Experimental Investigation of the Normal Mind in Men and Women by Helen Bradford Thompson, her Ph.D. thesis from 1903, also available online. Diagnosis and Treatment of Young School Failures by Helen Thompson Woolley and Elizabeth Ferris, Department of the Interior Bureau of Education, Bulletin 1923, Number 1. My biggest source by far was Ignored But Not Forgotten, the work of Helen Bradford Thompson Woolley by Jane Fowler Morse, who is the subject's granddaughter. The NWSA Journal, Summer 2002, Volume 14, Number 2, pages 121 to 147. Dewey, Women and Weirdos, or the Potential Rewards for Scholars Who Dialogue Across Difference. 
This is an interesting collection by Craig A. Cunningham, David Granger, Jane Fowler Morris again, Barbara Stengel, and Terry Wilson. It was published in Education and Culture 2007, volume 23, number 2, pages 27 to 62. If you are interested in Albert Barnes, it has an excellent chapter on Dewey's relationship with the doctor. The Science of Sex Differences in Science and Mathematics by Diane F. Halpern, Camilla P. Benbow, David C. Geary, Ruben C. Gurr, Janet Shibley Hyde, and Morton Ann Gernsbacher. That's from Psychological Science in the Public Interest, August 2007, Volume 8, Number 1, pages 1 through 51. Handbook of Gender Research in Psychology by Jones C. Chrysler and Donald R. McCreary, Springer, New York, 2010, pages 19 to 41. And finally, Dangerous Women and Reasonable Men, Gender and Eyewitness Testimony at the Turn of the 20th Century by Jess Mears. It was a graduate thesis from the University of Canterbury, 2016. Stay safe, stay well.